Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. At the end of the second week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Europeans' complacent perception of their security situation has been shattered. But watching developments in and around Ukraine just as intently, of course, is China. And with me to understand how Beijing is thinking about the strategic implications of Putin's move is Dr. Jabin Jacob, Associate Professor at the Department of International Relations and Governance Studies at the Shiv Nader University in India. Dr. Jacob holds a PhD in Chinese studies from Jawaharlal Nehru University. His research interests include Chinese domestic politics, Sino-Indian border areas, and center province relations in China. His latest publication is a co-edited volume titled China's Search for National Rejuvenation, Domestic and Foreign Policies under Xi Jinping. Professor Jacob, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me on your show, David. So last, last week you published two brief and very interesting uh, pieces. They're both uh, linked on, on Twitter. One titled, How the Russia-Ukraine Crisis Works in China's Favor. And the other one, kind of looking at the other side of the coin, titled, The Sino-Russian Ties, Intimacy Can Breed Complications. Uh, two very, very interesting pieces. I encourage the listeners to go and take a look at them. Before we get into the, the arguments you set out in these two articles, let me ask you to kind of give us your sense of what the Sino-Russian relationship was like going into this Russian invasion, how, how it's been developing over the past couple of years. Well, overall, I think uh, China-Russia relations were fairly stable. Uh, they were connected by common interests. Uh, above all, I think, regime preservation. Uh, they had common interests of uh, sort of weighing in against uh, the United States. Uh, trying to undermine liberal democracies everywhere. And, uh, you know, the reason why I stress this part is because uh, the nature of the regime in both China and Russia uh, means that each of these regimes has an interest in using the openness of democratic societies uh, uh, against them. Mm -hmm. Open democratic societies anywhere uh, are an alternative political system that threaten authoritarian regimes such as uh, China's and Russia's. So one of the things that they sort of found common ground in uh, was uh, to find ways of using disinformation, misinformation, to sow confusion and discord in these democratic societies. I think the Chinese learned a great deal from what the Russians uh, did during the American elections. Uh, and I think the Chinese also learned a great deal from the Russians in terms of how to punch well above your weight, uh, you know, in a global order that was essentially stacked against you. Uh, the Russians have been suffering from economic sanctions for quite a se several years now. Mm -hmm. yeah, since 2014, right? Since 2014. And now the Chinese have been at the receiving end of American, uh, you know, trade sanctions and so on. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, uh, there are lessons that both sides and I think especially the Russia, uh, the Chinese uh, have a, have to learn from the Russians. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about some of the the potential benefits for China of, uh, of Putin's move. Uh, you set these out in the article, as I as I as I mentioned, which is titled "How the U Russia Ukraine Crisis Works in China's Favor." Um, talk a little bit about the ways in which you see this potentially playing out well for China, including 
first of all, perhaps the, the, the idea that in the last couple of years, we've seen position papers and, and U.S. officials talking about the need to, to focus more on the Indo-Pacific. This was also going back to Obama, right? The, the, the pivot and so on and so forth. So do you think that there is uh, China's kind of gleefully looking at this in, in a sense and, and thinking, well, the U.S. will at least for the next couple of years perhaps be distracted to a significant extent in, in Europe? I agree. I mean, I think already Chinese analysts are claiming that the U.S. is going to be tied down in the European theater for several years at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, frankly, uh, I think they're right to make this assumption because uh, if you remember, the George W. Bush administration came in uh, uh, saying that it would target uh, the Chinese. But then 9-11 happened and the United States' attention was entirely diverted to this so-called global war on terror. For almost two decades. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, that gave the Chinese a great deal of uh, breathing space. In fact, they called it it their uh, window of strategic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I suppose the Chinese must expect something of that sort. Uh, I I don't quite think that is going to happen. I think the the Americans have really learned their lessons uh, uh, from that first... uh, period of distraction, and uh, they end up facing a much stronger, much uh, more assertive China. So uh, it's very unlikely that they will take the ball, eye of the ball entirely. But yes, in the short term, uh, this is a major U.S. Uh, distraction. Uh, but even so, I think that the U.S. is already baking in certain uh, approaches uh, to prevent them you know, the, the focus on China from being entirely sidelined. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have to wait and see, for example, how the Quad uh, shapes up. Uh, currently, it says that uh, it's explicitly non-military. But, you know, at the moment, there are some concerns about whether or not the Americans will impose sanctions on India, for example. Right, because of the S-400, right? Yeah, because of the S-400, but also the extensive uh, defense relationship India has with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sense is uh, there's already thinking within the United States that this would be a very foolhardy idea. Uh, so that's in the sense of the immediate, shall we say. But in the long term, I think the advantages are several. I mean, from a political point of view, the narrative is everything. This is another opportunity for the Chinese to say that here's Cold War politics continuing, uh, an opportunity for them to highlight U.S. hegemony or so-called U.S. hegemony. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, of course, will find plenty of buyers, uh, you know, in the developing world. Uh, the U.S. has not been an exemplar of democracy. Uh, it has not made use of the post, uh, uh, you know, Cold War moment in order to strengthen uh, liberal democracy around the world. It's been rather more engaged in navel gazing and its own uh, uh, own own concerns. Uh, you know, from the Russia-China point of view, again, uh, yes, there's this possibility that with sanctions biting, uh, Russia will become even more dependent on Chinese support. Right. Uh, of course, the, the flip side really is, uh, you know, whether Chinese actually want the Russians to be so dependent on them. Right, right. And we'll come to that, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, in the short term, um, it, it plays to certain uh, ideas or uh, themes of Chinese foreign policy which is the greater use of Chinese currency, the renminbi, 
or Chinese alternatives such as infrastructure projects uh, in the forms of BRI and so on. And also remember, uh, Chinese standards for technology, for infrastructure, all of this, all of this becomes easier now with the Russians uh, increasingly forced to turn to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll have to wait and watch really how the, uh, the conflict plays out. Yes, indeed. Let, let me ask you actually about the, about the renminbi. To what extent do you think this is an opportunity for China to really promote uh, greater use of or kind of internationalized use of the renminbi? I mean, are, are they really thinking here that, you know, this is a great opportunity to make Russia kind of a huge test case for what it would look like to have, you know, transactions uh, in renminbi? So there are limitations with the Chinese approach on the internationalization of the renminbi. One, because the Chinese are not willing to make, uh, you know, the renminbi fully convertible, mm-hmm. uh, there, there, is a, there is a problem there. I mean, it is very closely tied into a very detailed uh, arrangements, contracts uh, at a bilateral level. So the Chinese haven't yet the confidence uh, you know, to be able to replace uh, the dollar because, well, they'll have to be uh, printing renminbi. Yeah. Uh, then there's also the question of whether countries believe in the absence of convertibility, in the absence of transparency in the Chinese economic system, financial system, whether the renminbi is actually a reliable currency uh, to use for global transactions. So I don't think, uh, you know, this is as easy as uh, uh, the Chinese themselves claim it to be. But yes, you know, small steps matter. And Russia is a big power. And if the Russians uh, decide that, well, you know, uh, they want off uh, in terms of dependence on the US dollar, if the Russians decide to ensure that their transactions, you know, the military transactions with countries such as India, etc., will, uh, you know, need to follow other channels, then we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but as of now, uh, I think these are just small steps, small, uh, shall we say, victories for the Chinese, uh, but they don't yet amount to much. Uh, mm-hmm. The U.S. position in the global financial system is still too strong. And remember, a lot of Russian money, trade, uh, reserves are still tied to the U.S. dollar. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the potential difficulties for, for China here uh, of Putin's move. And you, you talk about these in, in, in the other piece, which is, called, which is titled Intimacy Can Breed Complications, which is a very nice way of putting it. Um, first of all, let, let's start with the ideological piece. I mean, of course, what Russia has done here is to essentially legitimize the idea that you can, you can change international borders on the basis of some ethnic affinity between peoples on, on, on one side or other of the border, right? Now, now, to explain for the listeners why, why that is kind of a, a slightly awkward for, for China. Well, uh, China calls itself a multi-ethnic state, but it's a multi-ethnic state with uh, the minorities in various forms of distress or uh, in various forms of protest or rebellion against uh, uh, the Han dominant majority. Right, in Tibet and Xinjiang, etc. Right? Tibet, Xinjiang, and even in Mongolia. Uh, you know, the Chinese uh, policy on so-called ethnic regional autonomy is one in which uh, the minorities are sort of given a fixed, very well-defined place in with, within which they have to act. And uh, loyalty to the state, to the Communist Party is above everything else. 
Uh, and uh, Communist Party feels any expression of uh, out of the ordinary, you know, that sort of gets out of the uniform set of conditions or steps laid down by the Communist Party or the, the Chinese state is a threat to its legitimacy, can breed uh, dissension, dissent, and so on. So, uh, so when a state, and especially one as big as Russia, decides to go ahead and say, well, you know, ethnic affinity is good enough for us to make a claim on another sovereign country's territory, right. uh, then uh, you have multiple concerns for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, uh, remember, I mean, the Chinese have a Russian ethnic uh, minority too. It's one of the 56 ethnic groups, the Russians. Hmm. And in Xinjiang, they have multiple ethnic uh, groups that have, uh, you know, their cousins across the borders in uh, Kazakhstan, in, in Tajikistan, and so on. Uh, the Inner Mongolia, I already mentioned in the sense, I mean, they have a whole country to themselves, uh, the Mongols. And of late, there have been protests over issues of teaching of the Mongol language for school children in schools in this area, uh, and so on. So, yeah, which is typical of competing nationalisms, right? Absolutely. And so this, this complicates, uh, you know, the narrative uh, the Chinese have. The second is, it puts pressure on the Chinese uh, to do something about Taiwan. I mean, look, uh, the entire narrative of the Communist Party has been, look, we brought China to this great pass. Uh, the Communist Party has just celebrated 100 years uh, of its existence. Uh, promised uh, a moderately prosperous, says that it is now a moderately uh, prosperous country. Uh, absolute poverty has been eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's the question of Taiwan. So uh, Chinese nationalists uh, will say, well, here's the Russians invading Ukraine on uh, questions of nationalism. When is it that we are going to get back Taiwan? And this has been a promise that the CPC has been making for uh, decades now. So that's another pressure that the Chinese face. And the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want its timetable being set either by its own people or by a country outside its borders. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's where the uh, real big complication is for China in terms of the domestic impact of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the, the, the historical justification here, right? I mean, Putin went on this rant about how, you know, Ukraine is really just, you know, kind of mm -hmm. a fake arbitrary administrative subdivision of russia well by that logic you know yeah. th this this plays into also the cartographic war quote unquote between china and india right i mean both sides can play this game both sides can play this game uh and so you know the chinese were not very happy i think with the uh with the russian invasion of crimea in uh, 2014 so again the, the chinese have been careful to remind the rest of the world that uh they took a neutral position on many of these russian actions Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it puts pressure on the Chinese, but at the same time, it's something that the Chinese are learning from. Okay, how do you, how do you, you know, manage this narrative? How do you uh, learn from this? Uh, I mean, how do you deal with an emergency situation, right? Mm -hmm. How do you uh, both carry out a particular action and respond to global res uh, reactions? I think the Chinese have also learned that global reactions can be confused, uh, can be a bit all over the place. And, but they must worry now that now that the world has seen what Russia is capable of, uh, the world is also paying attention to 
China's other territorial disputes, the one with India, right. uh, the one involving Japan, um, and also a possible invasion of Taiwan, right? I mean, this is a constant comparison that is being made, Ukraine and Taiwan. And the Chinese are saying, here the Chinese are using history to say that uh, people who make this comparison do not understand history. So the Chinese are very quick off the blocks to say, well, the Russian uh, case is different and our case will be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look, if the Russians, despite all this ethnic affinity, can bomb civilian areas in Ukraine, uh, does that mean that the Chinese are going to do the same uh, with respect to Taiwan? I, uh, I, for one, don't think the Chinese, I mean, despite claims of uh, saying that, you know, anything is possible, that force is possible, I don't think the Chinese really want to take Taiwan by force. That would defeat the entire purpose of uh, uh, reunification. You don't. You already have hostile populations within your territory. You don't want more, mm-hmm. uh, and especially one that you say is part of the Han majority. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, of of Taiwan, to what extent do you think the Chinese are learning military lessons here? I mean, obviously the two cases are very different. I mean, first of all, there's a huge body of water right between yeah. <laughs> mainland China and Taiwan, so they're very different scenarios. But um, are they? Do you think Chinese military planners are kind of you know, reconsidering how easy or difficult it, it may be to take Taiwan, given you given the 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 the, the resistance Ukraine is putting up. No, I, I think I certainly think the Chinese will have to think again about their Taiwan options insofar as the military options are concerned. Right? The political options will continue. Uh, the political, uh, you know, undermining of Taiwan's political system, democracy, etc., all of that, psyops, and so on, is going on. Yeah. But from the military point of view, uh, well, it's not just a body of water separating. Right? I mean, Taiwan is an island. So in, in a sense, it also means that uh, Taiwan can be managed much more easily uh, than Ukraine, where you, know, you have possibilities of uh, refugees fleeing or mercenary fighters coming into the country and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas Taiwan, and is a much smaller uh, sort of a, a, a geography than Ukraine is, right? So, and the Chinese have been testing, uh, you know, the air services, the air force, the navy. So they have planned a great deal more, I think, than the Russians have uh, for a Taiwan contingency. Um, so, but if you look at uh, the, Thai- the Russian operations, I think one of the concerns that the Chinese will have is the question of discipline. What does uh, the, the sort of, I mean, some parts, if reports are to be believed, some shambolic uh, Russian response on the ground mean uh, or imply for political indoctrination of soldiers. I mean, the Chinese PLA is a political, is, is, a, is the army of the Communist Party, right? Yeah. So in one sense, yes, it is going to be better disciplined. But uh, they have also been fed a certain narrative on Taiwan, uh, which they might come, you know, they might realize is completely different once they are on boots on the ground in Taiwan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese will think about how their psyops, their media wars need to be tailored to become more effective. They must wonder whether this are, is this enough? Is the pace good enough? What are the targets? All of this. And of course, the Chinese are going to wonder whether, you know, they are reading the situation right. I mean, they, if the Russians read the situation so wrong, despite such ethnic affinity, such close linkages, such yeah. close observation mm-hmm. of Ukraine, the Chinese must wonder what are they getting wrong about uh, Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, as in Russia, so also in China, China suffers from a problem of analysis being skewed by political interests. Uh, you know, leaders want to hear a certain kind of news or views on the problem. Yeah. Nobody wants to give the bad news, right? Nobody wants to give the bad news. Nobody wants to give uh, an option that, is, that isn't successful or uh, paint a scenario where failure is, an op- a failure is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess, um, I think, uh, and also, once you find, you invade, how long is it going to take you to pacify? Uh, I mean, firstly, conclude military operations and then pacify the citizens. All of these are concerns uh, that the Chinese will have to think about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you one could argue that this has both brought forward the schedule of a potential invasion of Taiwan because it really matters a great deal on what the rest of the world, how the rest of the world responds. If the rest of the world isn't going to respond, then the Chinese can deal with insurgencies for as long as they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Japanese did this uh, uh, during the colonial era for a while. So uh, the Chinese can also do this. On the other hand, it might have pushed forward the timetable because the Chinese now need to go back to the drawing board. Right, yeah. So Russia looks like will will be severely weakened by all this, not only the the shambolic military difficulties they've had, but also um, politically. But is there a sense in your view in which there there is a, a kind of a fine a fine balancing act here for China? It want it doesn't necessarily mind if Russia is more dependent on 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 China, but a Russia that is too weak that actually has to be propped up would also not be in their in their interest right is that how you how you view things yeah so to come back to an earlier point uh, i mean given the nature of authoritarian states yes they don't like uh, liberal democracies but they also need to be careful about each other uh, so in a sense i think there is an opportunity that the chinese see in russia's weakness this is an opportunity for the chinese to uh, you know enter into Central Asia or, you know, gather more influence in Central Asia, which is a common neighborhood for both Russia and China. Uh, it is an opportunity for the Chinese to play Russian dependence uh, to the hilt, uh, to make, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think the history of Sino-Russia relations also shows that the Chinese have been extremely careful in managing the Russians. They are aware of uh, Russian nationalism, Russian irredentism, uh, and Russian sensitivity, uh, and the Communist Party, for all uh, you know, is also very sensitive to this history uh, of having learned from the Russians. Uh, and there's also a military relationship in which the Chinese have, to some extent, uh, dependent, and by the way, also on the Ukrainians uh, for high tech. So uh, there, there are there are limits to how much the Chinese can push the Russians, even if Russian dependency, economic dependency really, uh, increases in the short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they might resist the temptation to exploit this to the maximum, in other words. Yeah, exploit it to the maximum. But I, you know, I also don't think the Russians, uh, that the Chinese are want to sit on their haunches and spend too much time in self-reflection. Yeah. <laughs> they will want to take, adva- uh, take advantage of the, you know, the current situation. Yeah. Uh, and... Look, uh, I think primarily the Ru- Chinese will want to paint both the Russians and the West, uh, uh, you know, as incompetent, uh, as looking bad. 
they they want to make sure they are number one right they don't want to share the stage with the russians uh, and if the russians are going to be you know unsuccessful in the military campaign then they they also don't want to be hanging around with a loser uh, so they have also been careful to you know send out feelers to the americans to the europeans to say look we are trying to be neutral and this is also the 50th anniversary of the nixon visit right so there's a huge effort in china right now to try and set things on uh, even keel with the americans and especially because uh, you know this is also the 2022 uh, is also the 20th party congress for the chinese yeah. they don't want the international uh, environment to be unstable when they have such a big domestic event uh, going on yeah especially xi has a lot has a lot riding on that uh, yes he has a lot riding on it uh, i mean you know the fact that he centralized power so much and that chinese foreign policy is a personification really of she's initiative or she's you know interest uh, i think uh, if foreign policy blows up in some form or the other it will also reflect badly on she yeah final question professor jacob as i said now we're at the end of the second week um obviously the outcome of the war is still very much undecided but there are one can one can see an outline of how several scenarios could play out right there's there's one scenario in which slowly the russians kind of grind it out and eventually the the ukrainian army as an organized fighting force collapses what comes after that who knows maybe some some kind of um insurgency uh maybe the resupply routes are are cut off and that dwindles out who knows but um what's your sense of what china is is hoping for at the moment are they getting increasingly uncomfortable with the 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 military with the destruction of 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 ukrainian cities and so on and so forth or or would they be okay with something like a grinding insurgency that slowly bleeds the russians well you know frankly there isn't so much to bleed the russians off anymore i mean uh i think the chinese are going to be uncomfortable the longer this drags on uh they want stability quick uh, they want uh uh an authoritarian state like russia to be able to enforce its will as quickly as possible because if it doesn't then it also indicates certain weaknesses in that kind of a political system where the feedback mechanism doesn't work uh, military commanders don't seem to be in the you know uh, capable of taking or planning uh, military operations well no matter what has happened in syria or anywhere else and the chinese aren't going to be worried about the destruction of ukrainian cities or of civilian populations uh, but they want this thing to be settled as quickly as possible and they might even see an opportunity uh, for you know contracts and reconstruction and so on etc in ukraine if the situation stabilizes and the chinese have been uh, known to go into uh, conflict zones uh, in order to take advantage of uh, such opportunities right mm-hmm. uh, but Uh, overall i think uh, uh the chinese will want to ensure that the russians yes are tied down in a particular way uh but not so weakened that they cannot support or they cannot uh, you know still be a major pole in global politics mm. uh the failure of russia would mean in you know in the chinese calculation in zero sum games would be in the victory of the united states and that would mean that china faces a much stronger uh liberal democratic order uh that it might have to face on its own mm-hmm. so uh 
that is also a concern for the uh, for the Chinese at this moment. I mean, look, you see it from the statements of the Chinese foreign minister just recently. He said that you know uh, the Chinese are backing the essentially saying uh, the Russians are China's most important strategic partner, and he's refusing to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. So I think that tells you exactly where the Chinese stand uh, for the moment. Very interesting. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but uh, certainly willing to keep an eye on, on Beijing. That may be where the, the key to how this crisis unfolds uh, lies. My guest today has been Professor Jabin Jacob. Some of his work can be found at indiaandchina.com. And he also tweets at Jabin Jacob T. Professor Jacob, this was great. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to David's Politics Show. If you enjoyed the episode, do consider subscribing and leaving a positive rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. This helps other potential listeners find out about the podcast. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long.